It's the Bob France Authority here on AM 1420. The answer. All right, we're going to forego the top of the hour Reagan open now, eight minutes past 10 o'clock, because we went a little bit late into the break, and I want to start this uh, half hour of the program on this Tuesday, the 30th and penultimate morning of the third month of the year of our Lord 2021, with uh, a piece of audio that I think you're uh, going to be acutely interested in, and oh, by the way, that our next guest is going to want to respond to as well. Thank you, Congressman, for the opportunity to respond. I agree with you entirely that if there is discrimination, it's against Asian Americans. In fact, just yesterday, or day before yesterday, I filed a brief in the excuse for fair, fair admissions against Harvard case in the Supreme Court. Is Stop bringing in irrelevant issues. There are more Asian Americans at these Ivy Leagues. Underrepresented. These are different issues happening. So just answer my question about Asian Americans in the federal judiciary or minorities in the federal judiciary because it is underrepresented. It is underrepresented. This is not what the hearing is about. Underrepresented, definitely underrepresented based on the fact that there's been discrimination in the pipeline that we've been talking about. Profound discrimination against Asian Americans. Without question, profound discrimination. It's one of the reasons why I indicated before we have an erosion in confidence in the institutions because the perception by the public is we are making determinations on the basis of race. One of the most baleful and anathema considerations we have in the United States of America because of history is precisely why I say we must avoid at all costs the perception that decisions are being made on the basis of race. And when you look at the correlative with how decision-making is being made in the admissions process, it appears as if decisions in large part are being based on We're not talking about the admissions process. We're talking about the federal judiciary. The fact that it's 73% white and male means decisions were being made on the race of the applicant. And that is simply a fact because it's not statistically would not have come out as 73% white and male. So there it is. That's uh, Representative Ted Lieu taking a piece out of Peter Kirsten out at a, uh, at a uh, uh, House uh, committee hearing last week. Peter Kirsten now joins us for his regular Tuesday visit now on AM 1420. The answer. Pete, you, uh, is, is the sting gone from the, uh, from the assault there? From... <laughs> it wasn't much of a sting, and uh, you know, you've only got a portion of it there. It went on for quite some time. Um, he's got some issues. I will tell you, there's some, some real issues there, as, yeah. as do most of the Democrats, unfortunately, because uh, just as a, a, a quick um, uh, preface, the hearing's name was The Importance of Diversity in the Federal Judiciary. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a conclusory statement, as I said in my, in my statement before this committee. I said it's, that's a conclusory statement. Now, it's one that I don't disagree with, but it should be, is there, um, for example, you know, it's, it shouldn't be a conclusion of the importance, or is it important to have diversity in the federal judiciary? And my testimony, the parts you have, haven't heard, because there's a lot of it, is that I was skeptical that it made any difference. There are studies on this that don't show any differences. And on top of that, I said we should not be discriminating on the basis of race. Uh, here's the unfortunate part, Bob. I was the only witness in that hearing who said, Decisions about the selection of judges should not be based on race. Think about that. We are in 2021. That was a House Judiciary Committee hearing. There were, I don't know how many congressmen were involved in the, because um, it was by Zoom. You can't mm-hmm. tell on the quadrant necessarily how many people are involved, but there were a lot of people there. And not another witness on my panel even breathed a word of non-discrimination. It was presumed 
that discrimination was to be done, if it was good discrimination or benign discrimination or in favor of favored groups. And that was... Well, let's just say, what, let's just say, Pete, let's just say what it is. Anti-white discrimination is approved. Anti-white discrimination is encouraged because anti-white discrimination would be pro-minority discrimination. And if we give more federal judiciary seats or judicial seats to minorities and fewer to whites, then we will be better off. That was the, that was the presumption of the entire committee, correct? That's the presumption, and in fact, one of the witnesses was a federal judge, I'm not going to mention his name, but there was a federal judge who exhorted the committee to go big, was his word, go big when it came to diversifying the judiciary. How do you go big in diversifying something unless you engage in overt, pronounced discrimination? I was stunned by this. Nonetheless, well, well, uh, what Ted Lewis is saying, though, Pete, is that there has already been overt discrimination in favor of whites. His statement at the end of the clip that I played, and I acknowledge, of course, this is a short snippet of, of your entire day's affairs there. But what he said at the end of that little snippet was uh, that there is no way that there would be 73 percent white male judges in the federal judiciary unless they were being weren't be, unless they were being given their jobs because of their race. He literally said that. Now, I want to know, did he offer did anyone there offer any evidence whatsoever that any individual, much less a significant number or majority of white male judges, were selected because of their whiteness or their maleness? Because if they don't have any evidence to offer, offer there, that, that unsubstantiated claim is just, it's, if you'll pardon this, beyond the pale. Bob, you know, I've probably testified before House and Senate Judiciary more than almost anybody in the United States of America. And I mean that almost literally, because mm-hmm. in the last month I've testified three times. Uh, it's, and, and by the way, as an aside, it's very troubling that in a nation of 330 million people, something as important as the House Judiciary Committee would have one guy testifying so many different times, as if I'm an expert on everything in the world. And I'm, you know, this is the, it's flattering. But there's, this is not the way to run a railroad. Well, tw- well then again, 20 years on the Civil Rights Commission probably makes you a little bit more, you know, uh, relevant in these cases. Well, than, than uh, maybe, but, but here's the, here's the thing. Um, nobody even thought to bring up any evidence of discrimination. No one, no, it's, it's almost presumed that it's okay to discriminate against whites and males because yes. that's where we are today. No one even be breathed a word of any type of past, alleged past discrimination to get the judiciary where it is today. It simply started with the premise that we have to get more black, Hispanic, Asian, and female judges. Now, as I said before, I'm open to the argument that maybe this makes it a better judiciary, but I didn't see any evidence presented, and I read the studies, Bob. I've looked at these things. As you say, 20 years on the Civil Rights Commission. If someone can give me a plausible reason, it has to be a, as I said in my testimony, you didn't hear it there, but I said there has to be a compelling state interest. That's the law. That's the Supreme Court jurisprudence. There must be a compelling state interest in order for the government to discriminate on the basis of race. Nobody presented any evidence aside from whether it was compelling evidence. This is very troubling. It's a troubling development. We're just kind of sleepwalking through discrimination right now. Pete, let me let me give you my problem with what Lou said and what the entire point of that Judiciary Committee's uh, you know point of view was. What they are suggesting is that um, first of all, the seventy three percent of federal judges uh, being white males that they are being biased in their application of the law. They are being biased yeah. in the cases that they hear simply because of their whiteness. And as such, 
what they are advocating for is for black, Hispanic, Asian American, and I don't know what other, what other ethnic groups they want to have quote unquote equal representation of or more representation of is that we're advocating that they go on the bench and balance the scales and thus they cannot be trusted is what they're saying here to actually apply the law evenly and fairly across all races. Because if they could, then there would be no need for this equal or, or equivalent representation based on American demographics of representation in the judiciary. They're saying we expect black just to rule a certain way when it comes to maybe black defendants, black plaintiffs, uh, or, or whatever the case might be. We expect Hispanics to give a little bit of deferential treatment to Hispanic, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, plaintiffs or, or defendant, defendants, or whatever the case might be. They're essentially saying we want bias to exist in the federal judiciary, because if they said there should be no bias, then it shouldn't matter what the hell color the judges are. I'd have a lot more confidence if you were on the House Judiciary Committee, Bob. I did make a point very, very similar to that, and you're right, that um, what they are expecting, they expect bias in favor of whatever ethnicity or sex the judge happens to be. That, that's the, the, it wasn't just the underlying part of the hearing, it was overtly a part of the hearing. Now, there is, I will, look, I, I, I try to be factual about this stuff, there is some evidence that when litigants go before certain judges, if, if a black litigant, for example, goes before a black judge, that he feels a little bit more confident in the outcome, okay? There is evidence of that. But that begs the question, why? Is it because we've experienced bias from these individuals? I don't know. We have no evidences to that, but what we're asking for, what the House Judiciary Committee is exhorting and looks to be going in the direction of, is appointing people on a proportionate basis, apparently, on the basis of what their ethnicity is that is mm-hmm. proportionate to their, their uh, uh, representation in the population. That is, first of all, it's extremely dispiriting <laughs> as a preliminary matter. Agreed. It's also unlawful, and it's not what... The United States ethos, the American ethos, is all about. I thought we were trying to avoid those kinds of things. We're becoming far more racialist in this country than the, than we were ten years ago. Well, they're, they're, extremely they're, troubling development. The fact of the matter is, there is no longer a movement to wipe out racial discrimination. The fact of the matter is, it is to reverse racial discrimination to make it acceptable and, in fact, encouraged against the white race. Whiteness is evil. White supremacy is the result of too much whiteness in any given body, whether it be governmental or corporate or private or anything else. Too much whiteness leads to the problems that we have today. So, white people have been put on notice. You are going to be discriminated against in favor of equity in terms of numbers, in terms of representation in a body, uh, and there's nothing you can do about it. It's forget about this entire goal of colorblindness. It is all about seeing color now, and if the color is white, it is going to be discriminated against heartily and with vigor. That's just the reality of where we are right now. Pete, I'm going to use that to take our time out. We'll come right back. I've got a lot more to discuss with Peter Kirstenau as we continue on this Tuesday edition of The Authority. Right back. Okay, it's 1024. Now we continue on AM 1420. The answer with Peter Kirsten. Now, Pete, I want to, uh, 
I want to move over to the vaccine issue now. Uh, you know, as people just heard in my discount drug mark commercial, I am not going to tell anyone to get or not to get the vaccine. That's the beauty of a free country is that you can choose to get it if you decide it's right for you. And I'll even help you get in line at discount drug mart. If you choose not to get it, that should absolutely be your choice. And it should not impact your ability to buy or sell or trade or travel or engage in American lifestyles. Uh, that's my setup for vaccine passports. Uh, Andrew Cuomo's uh, New York uh, passport program it begins on Friday, April 2nd. Uh, apparently, you are going to have to prove that you either have had a negative COVID test recently or have been vaccinated by this app that they are making available for you to download on your smartphone so that you have a little uh, barcode that uh, you can scan in various places to show a green check mark showing you've been vaccinated or a big red X saying you have not. And if you have not, you can be refused admittance, admission rather, uh, into various places of business. According to, well, I guess this is the AP, Joe Biden and other private and public entities are working to develop national vaccine passports that essentially would do the same thing. Pete, I'm seeing an intersectionality collision here. Um, Generally speaking, people who are resistant to take the vaccine are conservative-minded, or they're black. You know that the disproportionate number of people who have refused to take the vaccine are African-American, and with some pretty good reason, historically speaking. They don't trust them. What's going to happen, Peter Kersenow, when Joe Biden makes this mandatory vaccine passport that you cannot travel, get on a plane, go into a ball game, a big crowded uh, theater or uh, arena without having this passport? Are they going to tell African-Americans... You can't travel. You can't get on this subway or that plane or go into that arena until you take this government-forced foreign substance into your body, and I don't care whether you trust it or not. I see a big collision coming. There's a possibility of that, and it's pretty clear they haven't really thought through the implications of this. They have, I think, defaulted to the traditional progressive inclination to engage in some type of statism, that is, of Mm -hmm. control. And that's what's predominated here. And they also have engaged throughout this entire pandemic in virtue signaling on steroids. This is to a large extent, let's, let's be honest about this, this has been a large extent. The reason why the Democrats have reacted in such a fashion is because the pandemic started under Donald Trump. Donald Trump, regardless of what people think about him, and also regardless of what the media has been saying, did a spectacular job with respect to COVID. Getting a vaccine online when everyone said it could not be done, especially the Democrats who were saying it would take four or five years, and Donald Trump is hallucinatory, or hallucinating if he thinks he can do it in shorter time than that, and sure enough, he delivered it in nine months. Uh, And the Biden administration and his uh, handmaidens in the media, of course, are trying to say now he's taken over and doing something with this. He's simply implementing what Trump had already put into place and gotten the vaccines in place. So I think the the problem for them is they still haven't thought this through, as is evident from a number of their other policy prescriptions. They haven't thought anything through yet. Is it, it, presuming that Biden has the ability to think in the first place. I'm not sure who's doing the thinking in the administration, but it's surely not him. I don't but know. But this is their goal. Pete, 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 I, I no, agree with you. They no haven't thought it through, control. but it is their goal. There is their goal. There's no doubt about that. It's their goal. They would like to do it. I'm skeptical as to whether or not it's going to be implemented for several reasons. I think from a policy perspective, they may rethink this. I know a lot of people are jumping up and down. The Democrats are and thinking this is a wonderful idea, another opportunity to control the American population. But I think they haven't completely thought it through, and they may revisit this. Number two is, 
again, I'm not sure anyone has thought through completely the legal ramifications of this. Um, yes, the government has a significant amount of authority when it comes to matters related to national or state governments do when it comes to police powers and um, health. But when we're starting to talk about national passports, a whole host of issues come into play or could potentially come into play. One of them is, as you indicated, disparate impact, whether or not certain protected classes are disparately affected by the policy. And is there a reason for that that overcomes the, the presumption against doing anything that would result in a disparate impact, especially on the basis of race or other protected class. But there are a whole host of others. There's Commerce Clause issues. There are so many different issues that are affected, but I put all those aside. We can research those things and see what the potential impediments to the implementation of such a plan would be, but this is fundamentally un-American. This is a passport to allow you to travel or engage in certain activities in the freest country in the history of civilization. We should rebel against that in the first instance. Not even think about the legal ramifications. Think about the philosophical ramifications. Americans don't put up with this crap. Sorry to put it that way. But that's our initial response to something as draconian as this, something as stupid as this. Pete, with due respect, that's your response. That's my response. And that might have been Americans' response 25 years ago. 2021 woke America may be clamoring for said uh, um, uh, vaccine passport. I don't want to be in a in a in a, an amusement ride car next to some unvaccinated person with teeming with their germs and their and their deadly viruses. I want to make sure everybody I'm around has that. This is a different time. It is a different time. It's a slightly dispiriting time, but it's also a time when you take a look at some of the polling data, one of which came out just today with respect to whether or not people are on board with the woke culture. People are afraid of saying certain things, and understandably so. They're afraid of being canceled. But if you take a look at the polling data, the overwhelming number of Americans are done with the woke agenda. Yeah, they may have voted, or I, I still think those juries out as to whether or not they voted for Biden. I really do. But the fact of the matter is that most Americans say this enough is enough. There, were, there was a poll taken with respect to whether or not they're on board with the cancel culture. And more than two thirds of Americans said this is nuts. Stop this stuff. And the rest of them are too afraid to say anything. Well, my, my hope, Pete, is that the cancel culture actually here comes to our rescue. Because going back to what I said at the beginning of this setup here. Um, you know, if Bob France walks up to my, you know, gate at, at Hopkins, uh, and, they, and they, no, I don't have a vaccine passport, and they say you can't go on, that's one thing. If Joe Smith, black guy from Cleveland, goes up behind me in line and says, no, I don't have a passport, um, what do you think's gonna happen? Do you think they're yeah, gonna I tell think... that black man you can't go on? Because the moment they do, you know, the NAACP and Benjamin Crump and everybody else is gonna be screaming that this guy, his civil rights are being violated because they won't let him get on an air airplane and the airline not wanting to be canceled for being quote-unquote racist in such a way uh will will be forced to capitulate and that might be the only thing that saves us in a in a strange way possibly and i think again they haven't thought it through and when something like that happens they're going to backpedal a million miles an hour it's just dumb it's bad policy there's little scientific evidence that shows that this will improve any type of outcome health-wise unless you've got a rational basis like that you don't do something like this but again right on principle, it shouldn't be done, and I think most Americans are on board with our position, Bob. I hope you're right, Pete, uh, and I hope that our uh, elected officials are listening, because right now they're studying it, and this is what their plan is. Hopefully they will listen. All right, 1032, news time. Back with Kirsten on one more segment on AM 1420, The Answer. 
Okay, 1037 now. Let's continue with Peter Kersenow. On AM 1420, The Answer. Pete, of course, I didn't even do his traditional intro because we just wanted to let Ted Lou yell at him for a little while. Pete, of course, is a, US, a Cleveland attorney, a member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. He is a, uh, a columnist for National Review and other places, too. Wasn't, it, wasn't your last article in The Federalist, Pete? Yeah, it was. Thanks. Yeah, and The Federalist, uh, which was terrific, which was your primer on, or our primer, rather, on critical race theory. That was fantastic. And, of course, he is a best-selling author as well. Pete, I want to go down to Georgia now. Uh, they're looking for some votes to steal. I could probably, if I had put some time into that, made that really good. Um, they, uh, they're looking for some votes to steal, and Governor Kemp down there followed the lead of the legislature and said, no, we're going to actually make it harder to steal votes down here in Georgia now. And the left has gone ballistic. Uh, they can't stand that the idea of, you know, signature matching, which is very, very subjective, depending on who's looking at it to see that that works, that that's going to be replaced by uh, mandatory uh, uh, identification, uh, photo ID. Uh, they cannot stand the fact that uh, 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 ballot harvesting is going to be limited, that drop, bo- drop box locations are going to be uh, are going to be more protected. Uh, all of these things are in, are designed to make sure that every Georgian who is eligible to vote gets a vote and gets to vote once. That Georgians or people who are not eligible from the, wherever they may come are not able to vote. And people can't just say, yeah, that's me, I swear it's me, and, uh, and, and just be taken at their word and be allowed to vote maybe once, twice, or three times a lady. So the... Uh, let's see what the left woke crowd is called for now. The Masters must pull out of Augusta. The baseball all-star game must be pulled out of Atlanta. And anybody that manufactures products in Georgia must um, leave and manufacture elsewhere or have your products be boycotted, all because they are trying to secure the integrity of the vote in Georgia. Peter Kersenow, um the left says anything less is racist. Anything less than the abolition of this law that was just signed is racist. Because as you know, as a black man, Pete, you can't get identification. You can't be expected to, to, uh, you know, to, uh, uh, stand in line to vote as opposed to conveniently drop something in the mailbox, whether it's postmarked or not. You know, you, it's harder for you to do the, do those kind of things than it is for a white guy like me. So clearly a vote or a law like this is racist. Take it away. I've been waiting for a while now for Republicans and normal Americans in general to simply say enough is enough. We're not going for this anymore, not be cowed by the allegation of racist. It's long since been time to stop doing that. That's all the left has right now is to claim something is racist. And obviously it is not, and everyone knows it is not. You know, just uh, it, it pains me even to bring this up because you don't need this as an example. It's not even a very good example when you talk about the things such as voter ID being racist, which is one of the biggest crocks imaginable. But nearly 20 years ago at a Civil Rights Commission hearing, we had a hearing on whether or not voter ID is, well, it wasn't whether it's racist, but does it have a, an impediment to blacks voting? This was on, this was at the time when the Civil Rights Commission was completely dominated by liberals, as it is, was during most of my tenure, nonetheless. But the, the witnesses that came before the hearing were, we had one panel of witnesses that were ordinary black Americans. 
And, of course, the Democrats were asking questions about all the difficulties they had in voting and everything else like that. So I asked them, I, I asked one of the witnesses, how many forms of identification do you have? And she was very forthcoming about it. She reached into her purse and started pulling out all kinds of forms of identification, you know, driver's licenses, foods, you name it. It was so many. And as it turns out, the real fact is that in the main Black Americans generally have more forms of identification than do other Americans. Why? Because Black Americans have a higher propensity to participate in the kind of governmental programs that require identification. It's just ridiculous to even say something like this. And I'm hopeful that because the Democrats have overreached so many times in calling everything in the world that they don't like racist, and we know they don't even believe that, that finally... Normal people and Republicans, that's not necessarily the same thing, will finally say, no, we're not buying this stuff anymore. Cut it out. That term has been used. It's like, you know, uh, crying wolf so many times that it becomes completely nonsensical and useless. All of the things that are necessary for voter integrity do a number of things, but the most important is, and we've seen a significant erosion in this one dynamic, is faith in our institutions. In the last election, more than 50% of Americans are saying they don't completely trust the outcome. They're not sure. They, some of them aren't sure about it. They're not saying that the election was stolen, but it is a very troubling past that we are at when half of America isn't sure whether the election results were proper. When that happens, the authority of governing institutions and all kinds of institutions erodes and fails. And when that happens, you have civilizational collapse. We can't do that. We have to have integrity in institutions. As I said in my testimony before House Judiciary, if you start letting people think that the judicial system is gained on the basis of race, people will not have faith in the integrity of the judicial system, in the rule of law, and then everything implodes. This is imperative for maintaining the United States of America as an ongoing viable country. Aside from everything else, aside from just making sure the right people are elected, you have to have systems in place as a first instance for making sure people understand and people have faith in the, the governing structure of the United States of America. Otherwise, you've got anarchy. Yeah, uh, you do, and yet anarchy seems to be what they are pushing. Um, just to follow up on what I said at the beginning, Al Sharpton last night on MSNBC said that boycotts of Georgia-based businesses for not publicly opposing this new voting law would work, and he and they are calling for boycotts of Coca-Cola, Arby's, UPS, Delta Airlines, and Home Depot, among other Atlanta-based firms. Um do you think they will be successful? And do you think that Coca-Cola, Arby's, et cetera, et cetera, will now start running national commercials, expressing their wokeness and expressing their outrage at this new Jim Crow 2021 style of suppressing or disenfranchising the black vote? Uh, do you think those companies will bend? I know you're saying that people are getting sick of this, getting wise to it, but there's still a lot of power there. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, at the highest reaches of our major corporations, they are scared to death of the Wokarati. They're also afraid, uh, they also have at the highest levels, 
the most politically correct individuals in the world, especially in the HR departments. So they think that they're actually buying, you know, indulgences by going along with the woke agenda. So I'm not completely, you know, confident that large corporations won't go along with this. In fact, there's a fair likelihood that they would. Ordinary Americans, though, the consumers upon whom these corporations rely, understand that this is nuts, and I think there is a growing backlash against these kinds of companies, and especially these politicians, whether it's enough to forestall what's, what's being attempted in Georgia, I couldn't tell you. I really couldn't tell you. We are at the peak right now of cancel culture. I hope it's the peak. I do think it's the peak. I don't think it's going to go any higher. But we're at the peak of cancel culture of this entire insane narrative about the United States being a white supremacist country. That's conceivable that corporations will cave, and that will be enough to get weak um, legislators to change their minds. And when you talk about white supremacy, just as as a matter, think about this, Bob. We all know that this is just crazy. It's working for now to call everything white supremacist, but only in white supremacist America, going back to our previous discussion with respect to Ted Lieu, Mm -hmm. only in white supremacist America could an Asian American congressman yell at a black civil rights commissioner for pointing out that whites at Harvard are discriminating against Asian Americans in favor of blacks and Hispanics. That's how nutty we are in this country today. I, most Americans get it, and at some point, I think, and I think it's happening already, there's going to be a backlash against these woke companies who are too weak to stand our ground and stand for America and Americans. We are. We are too weak for that. Now, having said all of that, Pete, I'm going to take you to the perhaps the most racially divisive uh, situation going on in this country right now. Uh, it is what has led to a probably global uh, reckoning on race, certainly a national reckoning, reckoning on race, and that is of the death of George Floyd. Yesterday was day one of the Derek Chauvin trial. Chauvin or Chauvin, I don't know how he pronounces it. I said this to you before, um, just as they were selecting jurors, the city announced their $27 million settlement with the Floyd family, admitting guilt, admitting that they and their police force was uh, wrong and did commit a crime here, otherwise they wouldn't have given $27 million. I think it's impossible for him and the other officers to get a fair trial here. But that notwithstanding, do you have any thoughts on what you saw and or heard about day one, and how this will play out knowing that there are hundreds if not thousands gathered outside that courthouse every single day? I mean, I can still see the images of Los Angeles in 1992 in my head. Um, And, of course, what we saw all last summer is this outcome predetermined? You know, I. it pains me to say that, well, I don't know, but common sense takes a look at everything that's transpired in the last year. Every, as we talked about in, in just a minute ago, every major institution is pointing in a certain direction. The jurors, many of whom were petrified of the potential jurors, the juror, jury array was Mm-hmm. petrified of serving on this jury. They're afraid for their own safety, and they're afraid that whatever decision they make is going to end up in some type of conflagration. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if the outcome, if it goes in a certain direction, the consequences are predetermined. And it's almost as if 
many major institutions and without question, much of the mainstream media is cheerleading for one result. Uh, I, I don't know that there can be a fair result in this case. I really don't. It pains me to say that, of course, and I'm sorry for saying that so many times. But, um, you know, the justice system in America is the best system that the world has ever created. And yet what we're doing now is politicizing it to such a degree that a man is not going to be able to get a fair trial, I think, because of the pressures that are being imposed on every aspect of this trial and uh, the participants in the trial to come to a predetermined result. And I think if you ask almost every American to honestly assess this, they'll say the same thing. Uh, That's a sad pass that we are at. Now, no one should prejudge the determination um, in this particular case on any level. Uh, You can have your own opinion about these things, but that's why we try cases, because certain things come out. We know as conservatives, because we have looked at alternate media, that there's a lot of other things related to all the circumstances. And you and I, and, and I've talked about this going back to July of last year, when certain information with respect to uh, George Floyd started coming out and the toxicology report and all that other stuff. Um, nonetheless, you know, I think it's imperative that everybody keep an open mind until the very end. But there's an overwhelming amount of evidence that suggests that the outcome that I think most of the major institutions, the media, the Wokarati in this country expect and demand may not be the just outcome. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fairly stated, you know, and what it should come down to, in my estimation, is not the. Uh, the video, which of course is just you know, it's it's extraordinarily evo- emotion uh, evoking, or just emotional maybe. Um, but the facts and and the first autopsy declared that this was a death by overdose of lethal drugs, of fentanyl, uh, lethal amounts of fentanyl and methamphetamine, along with a heart condition and along with hypertension. That's what killed him. Not asphyxiation, no evidence whatsoever. But then the family, if memory serves on this right, Pete, got a private autopsy, and they kept getting private autopsies until they got one to say it was asphyxiation, which, of course, then gives them their their case for their settlement that they made in the civil suit. And now, of course, it gives the prosecution what they need to go forward here. So it may just come down to whether the jury is courageous enough, willing to put their own per- potential safety on the line, as you described, uh, to, you know, to determine which autopsy they truly trust and which one they do not. Because the videotape looks terrible, but this isn't about the videotape. It's about what killed the man. Right, exactly. And that's why it's essential. Look, we have a system in the United States of America. We don't prejudge things. I mean, you know, we as as members of the public, you can come to your own conclusion, but not when you are in that courtroom. You're supposed to look at these things right. dispassionately, weigh the evidence. I've seen evidence that shows exactly what you've said, Bob, and I've also seen the entirety of the videotape that shows that well before Derek Chauvin even showed up on the on the scene, George Floyd said numerous times, "I can't breathe." Yeah. Okay. And, and right. like you said, the, the, the autopsy report, the, the, uh, the, the coroner had said, you know, if he had known that the guy had died in his apartment, without question, it would have been because of a drug overdose and the underlying conditions that he had. And of but course, you know the what? fact that he swallowed drugs on his way into this, uh, as the police officers were arresting him, I mean, that was part of the opening statements yesterday. They witnessed him putting drugs in his mouth and swallowing them to hide evidence. That, on top of whatever he had already used, was certainly going to be enough to make him say, I can't breathe, and to kill the man yeah 
So. Um, weird times in America, strange times in America, and in many respects, dispiriting times in America. But you know what? We're Americans. We'll prevail. Yeah, no question about it. I just, you know, like I said, what you said is the jury is, you're right, the jury should be deciding only on the evidence that they see there. But I look back to example 1995 and the OJ jury. What did they do uh, and how much were they influenced by 1992? Three years earlier, Los Angeles burned like it had never burned before, including in the Watts riots. And I wonder how much that played made an impact on their on their decisions here. It was kind of a, a payback situation rather than looking at the overwhelming evidence. So, We'll see where it goes, and we'll talk about it next time. Peter Kirsten, now thank you, my friend. Thanks, Bob. Three fourteen days to the Super Bowl. <laughs> Counting it down to Kirsten out for one play. Thank you, Pete. Ten fifty three. Back after this. Well, it's 10.55, so obviously a short segment to wrap it up, as we do pretty much at the end of every show. And I want to use some of this to give you something positive. Um, Pete and I talked about the uh, vaccine passport idea. They're pushing and promoting this in uh, uh, New York. And as a matter of fact, they say it is supposed to start taking effect on Friday, April 2nd. Uh, reports from all over the country say that Joe Biden is working with members of his, his administration and companies to develop vaccine passports nationally. The Biden administration and private companies working to develop a standard way of handling credentials, often referred to as vaccine passports, that would allow Americans to prove they've been vaccinated as businesses try to reopen. The effort has gained momentum amid Joe Biden's pledge that the nation will start to regain normalcy this summer with a number of companies from cruise lines to sports teams saying they will require proof of vaccination before opening their doors to people again. And what positive message am I leaving with you? The message that not every American leader is on board with this tyranny, with this anti-American unconstitutional violation of your rights to privacy and your own medical decisions not to mention not to mention rather the vice of uh, of HIPAA laws that protect your medical information from anybody that asks you for it <clears throat> including whether or not you've taken a vaccine not every american leader is on board with this And once again, I want to give a huge shout-out and uh, the spotlight here to the Sunshine State. Because Florida is leading the way pretty much for all of us under the leadership of Governor Ron DeSantis. You want the fox to guard the hen house? I mean, give me a break. I think this is something that has huge privacy implications. It is not necessary to do. You know, we're going to have hit three and a half million seniors that have gotten shots uh, uh, sometime this week, likely 75% of seniors. It's important to be able to do it. But at the same time, uh, we are not going to have you provide proof of this just to be able to live your life normally. And I'm going to be taking some action in, in an executive function, emergency function here very shortly. I am going to be taking some action, some executive action, some emergency action here very shortly. Governor Ron decided, I don't know about you, but I am sitting here in the state of Ohio looking at the little mealy-mouthed, bespectacled buffoon, the whiny little Napoleonic tyrant Mike DeWine, and I have severe governor envy. I do. I've got governor envy. The people down in Florida are enjoying one of the greatest, if not the greatest, governor in America today. 
who is not locking its people down, who is not mandating masks, who is not going to allow vaccine passports to limit restriction of free Americans in his state from going anywhere they want, from engaging in business wherever they want, from attending functions wherever they want. Governor Ron DeSantis is setting the pace right now. He's charting the course, and I know it's only March of 2021, but I'm going to tell you again what I said to you about two, three weeks ago. When I hear the word DeSantis and the number 24 in the same sentence, I get very, very excited. DeSantis, 24. Those two things combined make me very, very encouraged. And I hope you agree. That's all the time we've got for you this morning on The Authority. Stay where you are. Mike Gallagher is coming up next on AM 1420, The Answer. We'll see you tomorrow.